Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grobs. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Brian Gerke. Coming up on this week's show, we'll be taking a look at current events in the world of science and technology. Joining us today is Mitch Stogger, who will tell us a little bit about the BART extension to SFO. In addition, Jimmy Lin will be joining us to give the weekly tech update. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, right here on Berkeley Grox. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And I'm Brian Gerke. Hey, so how is everyone doing? Well, I'd, I'd be doing a lot better if my car was uh, not uh, completely uh, trashed from some uh, obscene driver out there who involved me inadvertently in a hit-and-run accident. A hit-and-run? I was hit, he ran. Oh, man. Yeah. So it's time to get your Mercedes, right? <laughs> Well, we'll see how the insurance uh, insurance pays off here. Yeah, but good I'm, answer. Direct yeah. one car, time to get a new one. <laughs> yep. I'm, I'm just putting this out there in case you're listening to this show, which which might happen. You are scum. <laughs> scum <laughs> of the earth. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Jeez, who does that? Although I might have done that in the same situation, <laughs> I guess. But, yeah. Turnabout is fair play, huh? Yeah, I suppose so. But anyway. So shaken but not stirred. Right, right. Uh, so, uh, aside from my car, I guess, what's going on with uh, the uh, the world of science? The world of science? Um, I don't know. I have some food for thought later on, though. Food for thought? Yes. Okay. Well, I, I have a little question for everybody. So, um, does, uh, I guess, do you, do you ever fear death while making love? Uh, That's not usually the first thing on my mind. <laughs> I mean... I haven't quite experienced any of those things, but... I suppose I could... Test it out if I could find an opportunity uh, to, you know, I, <laughs> to be in that situation. It's not going so worth, well so far. It's worth dying for, huh? I, I, I suppose. I'm not, I'm not talking about any kind of sadomasochistic kind of ritual here. In fact, it has to do with the drug Viagra. Uh-huh. And apparently a fraction of the men, about 1%, who take this uh, uh, sildenafil, I guess is what the uh, actual name of it well, is. that's what you should have said. <laughs> so apparently uh, 1%. Uh, will have a nasty side effect of either uh, a heart attack or sometimes even death. <laughs> death while, while while taking the drug is is that is that caused by the Viagra itself or or the the general health of the Viagra taker? Uh, well, it's apparently caused by the Viagra itself. So apparently, what happens is uh, the platelets, which are these uh, tiny cell-like discs in the in the blood. They collect and form blood clots at the site of an injury, mm-hmm. um, and overactive platelets can clog blood vessels and cause heart attack or stroke. And apparently, this drug, sildenafil, Viagra, increases the blood concentrations of compound that basically increases uh, the blood flow in the penis and stimulates 
production of a certain enzyme, but also it also keeps uh, platelets from sticking together, and as a result, it could be uh, do you know help uh, because of this, it can clog arteries and lead to stroke. So I you mean, should also take an aspirin with that to uh, to uh, <laughs> thin your blood and uh, keep it smooth, I, right? I suppose so, but uh, it's it's something to keep in mind, I guess, uh, if you're if you're going to take that risk of of, of really needing to uh, to feel like you need to recover your sex life. Uh, there are some risks to be had if you're one of those lucky one out of a hundred. Maybe worth it though. <laughs> it may indeed. So if you want to find more, should you go important. to the Pfizer website? <laughs> I, I guess, or you could, uh, I guess, survey your, your partner to see what she thinks. But, uh, in fact, if you want to know about the data, you can check this out in the January 10th edition of Cell. Listen to your doctor. So, can you hear me now? Uh, I, I think so. Good. Uh, but it's not always the case, right? If you've ever tried to talk on your cell phone in a building or, say, behind a building from the... Right, that's that, pretty right. nasty. Yeah, it causes problems with these yeah. shadow zones and so on. Well, this isn't the Sprint PCS commercial, is it? No. Okay. no. Can you hear me now? Can, Can you hear me? me? Uh, well, yeah, that's the Verizon one, but, you know, whatever. Oh, well, whatever. Oh. <laughs> only, only, only we commercial aficionados <laughs> really, really see these things. <laughs> yeah. You have to be watching the commercials to really get them. But as it happens, it may... These these buildings that are that are such a bane to cell phone users may one day be uh, actually helpful in making the the signal really really uh, hearable, and that has to do with the fact that scattering structures between antennas and and receivers can help to improve the uh, reception that you get if you use them correctly because um, a, a transmitter producing a lot of different signals can cause confusion for the antennas receiving them, mm-hmm. uh, a confusion called crosstalk when when one antenna picks up something intended for the other. Uh-huh. And apparently it looks as if by putting scattering structures in between the antenna and the receiver, at least at ultrasonic uh, frequencies of communication, that the scatterers somehow reduce that crosstalk and, hmm. in fact, make distort the signal in such a way that only the intended receiver receives the signal intended for it, and not the rece- signal intended for other receivers, therefore, thereby reducing errors uh, between these things uh, between transmitter and receiver. Now, that sort of technology doesn't exist for cell phones as yet, but it may at some point in the future. And oh. buildings, for example, might be used as scatterers <laughs> to so the things strategically to build buildings just for a cell phone use. So it's, it's like the anti-Faraday cage, huh? Probably more more like. Setting up, you know, creating your antenna arrays in such yeah. ways to utilize that. Sure, but sure. Mm. If people want to find out more efficient, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. If any people want to find out anything more about the actual experiment that was done, they can look in the January edition of Physical Review Letters. If they want to see a little bit more about how this is going to affect communications in the future, they can look at the American Institute of Physics website, AIP.org, in their Physics News Update section. Okay, and now here's the uh, food for thought I was telling you about. Oh, the food for thought. Yes, and actually it's two stories. Uh, the first one comes from, from my new favorite journal, uh, Chocolatier. <laughs> I, I didn't even know they had a journal. It's all about chocolate and fine eating. Anyways, um, it's a commentary by Dan Lennister, who's saying that um, a lot of the uh, flavorings we use, the extracts, are actually artificial. So, for example, none of us, most of us have probably not had real vanilla 
Oh, really? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a vanilla synthetic. 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 And it turns out that the ones that are commercially made are actually uh, byproducts from uh, the uh, pulp paper making industry. Okay. <laughs> it's a, some sort of sulfite waste extract. Oh, yummy. Okay. <laughs> mm. Mm-mm. So that's that's what they're serving at the Baskin Robbins or the. Uh... Probably, unless you see those like black flecks in the um, vanilla, it's probably not the real stuff. And the other story comes from um, actually an article from the South China Morning Post a uh, month. Uh, month and a half ago, and apparently it reports on a story of um, a guy in Australia, Klein, who was working on uh, trying to build a better uh, better trap for mosquitoes. And his observation was mosquitoes tend to attack people's feet and ankles because of uh, of their smell. Okay. But similarly, it turns out that certain cheeses have that same smell. So what he found out was if he took certain um, blue vein cheese, he could get the mosquitoes attracted to them. So if you can identify what compound that the mosquitoes are attracted to, they can presumably build a better mosquito trap. Or just put some blue cheese out when you're mm-hmm. out at night. Yeah, Mm-mm. a big hunk of it. Well, it shows who uh, <laughs> who really has fine class for dining, huh? Right, right. Well, apparently, I guess uh, um, that's the reason uh, we have earwax in our um, in our ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's apparently because you know bugs would crawl into the ears, and uh, apparently the smell of the earwax though actually drives these bugs out. So oh really? It's actually the opposite sort of effect. I've been picking away all my earwax. <laughs> well, hopefully you don't live in a cave with bugs in it. But hmm. this, uh, this is just one of those wonderful accidents of evolution. Or you could save it and use it to repel mosquitoes. Uh huh. <laughs> or people, really. Okay, and finally, did you guys realize that uh, saliva has healing powers? Healing powers? I spit it on, uh, on my wounds all the time. That's why you lick your wounds, isn't it? I, uh, apparently, it's apparently why bats lick uh, people's wounds anyway, or at least uh, uh, use it to uh, inject, uh, use it when they're biting their prey. Mm. So the bat saliva apparently has a compound that's an anti-clogging uh, uh, agent. Really? You mean anticoagulant? Or? Yeah, yes, basically. So it can suck the blood out without clogging up uh, mm-hmm. uh, while they're trying to suck it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what a group of researchers have recently done is they've uh, isolated this factor, which they've called Desmodus rotundus, which is the name of the bat, salivary plasminogen activator, so DSPA for short. And what they've done is they've tried to test this in terms of uh, using it as an agent to um, uh, help uh, humans that uh, are suffering from stroke. Or really? have just suffered from a stroke. Mm-hmm. So apparently they've discovered that this particular agent, DSPA, works a lot better than the common agent, TPA, um, in terms of preventing stroke several hours after the uh, the stroke event. Hmm. So does this mean that one day we're going to hear like ER technicians yelling, get me 50 cc's of bat spit <laughs> stat? <laughs> I, th- I think you already hear that, but I think uh, that's, that's the lawyer, just right? something they do for fun <laughs> okay. around the ER. Um, but yeah, I think they've been using things like this uh, previously. I think <coughs> pre- other anticoagulants have come from, like, say, le- leeches. <coughs> leeches. Mm-hmm. So this would uh, appears to be a very nice one. And uh, if people are interested in reading about it, it's in the February edition of Stroke. Stroke. Give it some stroke. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Mitch Steiger will join us to tell us what's happening with the BART extension. 
so stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Grox. Well, here's a question that's been on everyone's mind. No, it's not how uh, we're going to stop global warming, but something a little easier. When is BART going to SFO? Well, joining us today is Mitch Stogner, the uh, Department Manager for Government and Community Relations for BART, and he's going to tell us a little bit about the project. Mr. Stogner, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Uh, so first off, could you tell us about this extension and um, when it's going to open? Sure. This extension has been the number one priority for this region, this nine-county region since 1988 when the Metropolitan Transportation Commission uh, established BART to the airport as the number one regional transportation priority. Mm -hmm. In about 1997, the federal government gave this project what is called a full funding agreement and agreed to pay up to $750 million of the cost. Mm -hmm. The other 50% of the cost comes from state and local governments through bridge tolls and sales taxes and the like. And the project is an 8.7-mile project that would start in Colma and move south down the peninsula with the station in South San Francisco, San Bruno, go into the San Francisco International Airport, and then terminate in Millbrae, where there would be an intermodal connection in Millbrae with the Caltrain, which is a 77-mile system. So this is a model intermodal project connecting the biggest regional rail operator, BART, with one of the fastest-growing airports in the country, San Francisco International Airport, and also connecting BART with Caltrain. Does the BART actually go directly into the airport, or is there uh, another um, another line that you have to transfer to? No, from most lines on the BART system, you can go directly into San Francisco International and go into the International Terminal, uh -huh. and the ticket counter is about a five-minute walk from where you would disembark from the BART train. So about 50% of the people who use San Francisco International Airport uh, fly United, and the United ticket counter is about a five-minute walk. Great. So what does this mean for commuters? Well, the most congested freeway in San Mateo County is on the peninsula 101, mm -hmm. uh, and what it will mean, hopefully, for commuters is up to about 70,000 a day, we estimate, will use that line, and we'll be able to take a direct trip into the airport and thereby avoid all the traffic that's typical on the peninsula. 
So you expect the traffic to go down a little bit? Well, yeah, in San Mateo County, we're hoping that this will have a major reduction on traffic, particularly in that area. Of course, when you've got the bay on one side and the ocean on the other, there's not a lot of uh, opportunity for anything other than transit. So it's really important in that area. I actually find global warming then. Uh, I think that it could be said that, in a sense, we're fighting global warming. I mean, hopefully this will take considerable amount of traffic off the highways. Right. I, I suppose it would help people on the East Bay as well, since many people do go to SFO from, from the side as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the Dublin-Pleasanton line, the Pittsburgh-Bay Point line, the Fremont line, the Richmond line, all of those should take advantage of this extension. And uh, when do you expect this project to be completed? Well, it's almost completed now. It's about 99% complete, and the testing is now beginning to mm -hmm. test all the systems, make sure that it's operational. It's a very complex uh, extension, and so it will require a lot of testing. And we are hopeful that it will be opened in late January, if not February, March. So I guess you're going to have a grand opening for this, right? Oh, yes, we will definitely have a grand opening. There were, have been many public officials that have been involved in this, not the least of which is Congresswoman Pelosi, the current mm -hmm. minority leader in the House of Representatives, and Senator Feinstein, our senior senator from California, mm -hmm. uh, former state senator Quentin Kopp, who is chairman of the Senate Transportation Committee, really march marshaled this project through the legislature, and Tom Lantos, the congressman from that area, has been extremely helpful, as has Senator Boxer and a whole host of others. But in, in carrying out this project, what would you say was the hardest part? Well, the engineers, I believe, and the project people will tell you that this is extremely complex and that most of it, about six miles of this eight-mile extension, is in subway. Mm -hmm. And it had to traverse by numerous communities down on the peninsula and actually goes right through about seven cemeteries. So it was a very complex project to build because of the terrain, because uh, it's in a densely populated area, and because of things like all the cemeteries south of Colma. How about in terms of uh, the earthquake safety? H has there been extra measures taken to uh, prepare for a possible earthquake? Uh, yes, BART's extensions are all built with state-of-the-art seismic retrofit measures taken and the latest technology. The part of BART that is susceptible susceptible to earthquake is the core system, the original system, the 72-mile uh, original system. That's the area that we really want to uh, seismically retrofit to mm -hmm. meet current standards. But this extension and our other extensions out to Pittsburgh Bay Point and Dublin-Pleasanton and Colma are all uh, very, very seismically safe. Great. So after this project, do you foresee any other extensions in the uh, near future? Well, we've got on, in the works an extension from the Oakland Coliseum to the Oakland International Airport, which uh -huh. would be about a three-mile extension in a monorail sort of configuration. Mm -hmm. And we also have in the works an extension from Fremont in the East Bay, about five miles to a place called Warm Springs, and then on down to San Jose. And there's also discussion about extensions from Dublin-Pleasanton to Livermore and Pittsburgh Bay Point out to Antioch. So we have all of those in the planning stages. 
Well, only that this, as I say, this extension to San Francisco International Airport is, is really a national, model national project, and we hope that it will be an example that will make the country proud, make the Bay Area proud, and we're anxiously awaiting its opening early next year. Early this year. Actually, <laughs> take that back. Early this year. Okay, so just one thing that brought up to mind. You know, there are other um, rail systems in the country, for example, Amtrak. Why aren't they faring so well as compared to BART? Well, actually, BART at the moment, ridership is not faring as well as we'd like. Ridership is down because uh, the economy is down, and mm -hmm. people who were riding BART in from out to Santa Clara County and elsewhere during the dot-com era when the economy was going very strong, no longer a riding BART to the extent that they did. And also we rely on the half-cent sales tax, uh, which in a down economy, revenues are coming in light there as well. So at the moment, BART ridership ha has dropped from about 330,000, daily riders to about 310,000 daily riders. So mm -hmm. all, all public transit is suffering from this downturn in the economy. And finally, could you tell us a little bit about the new fare system they're going to implement, the one that will unify BART, AC Transit, and Sam, Sam Trans? Yeah, actually, that's called the TransLink system, and it would allow one ticket to be used for all the systems in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. and it's in its uh, trial stages right now, and it's in a demonstration project phase, and by all accounts, it's working quite well, and we should have it fully operational, I think, within about a year or so. The Metropolitan Transportation Commission is heading that effort up. Okay, and uh, does that mean we'll have totally different tickets when that comes through, or is it still the same bar ticket? Well, it's a matter of changing the system, the, the fare collection equipment, to accept uh, a universal ticket. So it's really a technical issue, and once the technical issues are resolved, then a single ticket can be used on several of the major systems. Okay, well, I guess we're running a little bit out of time today, so I just want to thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you. And that was Mitch Stockton we just talked to. He's the Department Head of Government Community Relations for BART. For more information on the BART update, go to their website, www.bart.gov. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Jimmy Lin will tell us what's on the spot, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, in last week's tech review, Jimmy talked about some developments from Macworld. Well, this week, he's going to tell us a little bit about the Consumer Electronics Show. Jimmy? During the same week that uh, Macworld was being held 
in San Francisco, there was also the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. And uh, January 8th, Bill Gates made an announcement, and he introduced this technology called SPOT, which stands for Smart Personal Objects Technology. The idea behind SPOT is that SPOT is supposed to augment normal everyday objects with Mm -hmm. new smart. So, for example, like augmenting um, wristwatches or alarm clocks or refrigerator magnets or whatever with new technology that's supposed to make it smarter. So as a concrete example, several companies, Fossil, Citizen, and Sunto, are going to be releasing spot watches, wristwatches, later this year in the fall. And the deal with spot is is that it's, it consists of two things. There's this whole wireless network throughout the country that will be beaming data to these spot devices. Mm. And the technology being used is FM radio. Oh, okay, so, so it's not the cell phone or the Wi-Fi. That's right. It's, it's none of the fancier technologies. It's good old FM radio. It's underutilized as, um, portions of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so Microsoft has been working for several years, like three years actually, developing protocols and, and so that will work on FM radio and be resistant to, you know, corruption and data loss and that type of thing. I mean, it's not meant to broadcast large amounts of information like cell phones or even Wi-Fi is. It's, it's optimized for small bits of information. For example, these spot watches will be able to receive this data over the spot network and be able to display on their wristwatch you know, small bits of data like instant messages or like an appointment, you know, calendars, news stories, or news headlines probably. No one's going to be reading a whole story on their watch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe the weather. And so what users would do is actually go to a web page, probably through their PC, maybe through their PDA, and configure their device online. And that will actually determine what type of data gets beamed to their watch. And it's also... The devices will are location aware, so okay. they know where they are, where they are. So you never have to set the watch. Okay. So you can fly to New York and it will automatically, you know, from San Francisco and automatically switch the time zones oh, properly. Oh, cool. Cool. Stuff like that, and you don't have to worry about time drift and stuff because there's signals constantly being broadcast. Mm-hmm. It opens up, you know, kind of a new area. So this is not about general computing devices like PCs or even PDAs. Mm -hmm. This is about taking, you know, existing objects that you interact with every day and making them smarter, shall we say, by having this type of location-aware data that can be beamed to it. And so it will be interesting to see where this develops. I think we'll see applications that we we can't really even think of right now to take advantage of this. Well, one thing I can comment on is that uh, Microsoft hardware is, in general, pretty good stuff, <laughs> if, you, if there's any qualms about the software. <laughs> that, that, that's true. You know, the, their mice and their keyboards are very successful. And although in this case, the hardware that's used to receive this, uh, the data over the spot network was actually developed in conjunction with National Semiconductor. I see. So, and then... Uh, Microsoft has also uh, created alliances with um, with with uh, broadcasters such as Clear Channel to carry the signal over the FM um, FM radio. So it should be available in every state and most like the top 100 or so metropolitan areas. Okay, Jimmy. Well, thanks a lot for joining us on Berkeley Grox. Hey, thank you.
And here's the answer to last week's question of the week. Is Pluto really a planet? Well, Pluto is certainly very much unlike any of the other planets in that it is small and has a very high eccentricity of its orbit, a very elongated orbit. It's very much like the objects called Kuiper Belt objects, icy objects that sit at the edge of the solar system. In fact, it is a part of that cloud of objects. So if Pluto's a planet, it's a planet that looks an awful lot like a Kuiper Belt object, and it probably is just the biggest Kuiper Belt object. But if you want to think of it as a planet, I don't think you're hurting anybody, because it was discovered first. So no, Pluto is probably not a planet, but if it makes you happy, you can think it is. Well, Brian, I think it makes me more happy to think of uh, Pluto as a Kuiper Belt object, but we'll see what the audience out there thinks. So the question for this week is, so how do the dimples on a golf ball help it to fly? Well, if you know the answer or just think you know the answer, you can email us here at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but hey, you just might shoot par. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Brian Gerke. And I'm Franklin. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also stay tuned for more music with your host, The Boy Wonder. <laughs> <laughs>